Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. One of our favorite family traditions that we have is listening to this Christmas music that's a little kind of non-traditional Christmas music, but it's called Behold the Lamb of God by Andrew Peterson. Anybody familiar with that? It's, it's an amazing musical. We, uh, I've been 18 years out of the last 20 years to see this, these 10 songs performed by these group of friends who are musicians and singer-songwriters. So on Wednesday night, Natalie and I took our kids for the first time ever, and we drove down to Charlotte. And we went to Charlotte, and what happens is in the second half of the concert, they play these beautiful songs. A lot of the songs we sing here at Redeemer. Grayson Field sang a couple weeks ago, Deliver Us. That's from Behold the Lamb. We have a tradition every Christmas Eve of Anna Johnson singing Labor of Love. And, uh, and it's this beautiful song from there. But that's the second half of the concert. In the first half of the concert, these different musicians all play some of their own music. And so the first song that was played um, at this, this concert on Wednesday night was by one of my favorite musicians, a guy named Andy Osinga. And, uh, and he starts playing this, this song called Beautiful Places. But before he plays it, he gives us a little insight into himself, into his family. And he says, um, as of last week, I have two teenage daughters. And he said, it's like I'm watching the screen of my life, and I'm watching this timer click down in the top right corner. You know, And my daughters are growing up so fast. And I realize that someday that they're probably going to discover these songs that I've written. And these songs are going to tell them a little bit about what their dad was like and what their mom was like and what their life was like. And so as I'm writing these songs, I want to think through what kind of legacy that I'm leaving with them and what are they going to discover about me. And then he played this song called Beautiful Places that was kind of like a last will and testament put to music. And then everybody in the whole place cried except for me. And um, (laughs) yeah. You know, we, we have a God who is also our Father. And he has given us this treasure trove of songs so that we can find out what he is like. And so we can get to know him. And we can get to know who our daddy is. And so if you brought your treasure trove this morning or if you have it on your phone, I'd invite you to turn with me in this gift that God's given us to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, and, and let's listen to these songs that God has written for us, and let's get to know him. Matthew chapter 118, we just read, says this, Jesus' mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So in that time period, it was custom for parents to pick their kid's spouse. If you're in the room and under the age of 18, would you please raise your hand? If you would like for your parents to pick your spouse, please keep your hand raised. <laughs> hands, all these parents raising their hand, hands flying down fast for all these kids. You know, it, it was this crazy tradition and this custom, but it was, it was real, you know. And, and it's easy for us to forget that Mary was likely a teenager, you know, between the ages of 12 and 18. And that Joseph maybe wasn't that much older But before they were married, they have this year-long engagement period called a betrothal. And that was a serious commitment. It was almost just like being married. Like, if you were betrothed or engaged, you know, you would be called getting divorced, even though you hadn't been married yet. And if one of you died, then the other would become a widow or a widower. They took engagement really seriously. But they didn't come together 
during that engagement period. If they did, that would be considered adultery. And the legal penalty for that was actually stoning. But by the time we get to this narrative in Matthew 1, we realize that Mary is actually already four months pregnant. We know that because in Luke's account of the gospel, we see that Mary has gone to visit her relative, Elizabeth, and she spent three months there, and it was while they were both pregnant. And then she returns to Nazareth. And in verse 18, 19, we read, Before Joseph and Mary came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Matthew makes it clear that before they had consummated their marriage and come together, Mary got pregnant. Now imagine if you're Joseph and your fiance is gone for three months and she comes back in town and she's pregnant and you have not been with her. Imagine how that would make you feel. I mean, I imagine he probably was pretty angry at first, you know, because he assumed she had been unfaithful to him. Maybe he felt hurt or betrayed, or maybe he just felt terrified, because she's like, I didn't do that, it's God, you know, and, and he's like, could this be possible? Could she have had this divine encounter, and if so, like, I'm not unworthy to marry this woman. So he's feeling like all these emotions, and we look at this story that happened 2,000 years ago, this true story, and we, we hear a story that we've heard many times, and we think, what does this really have to do with us? But I guarantee you that every one of us in this room have faced a similar scenario that Joseph faced. Maybe you have started a relationship with somebody. Maybe it wasn't an engagement, but maybe it was. Maybe it was a marriage. Maybe it was a friendship. And you started this relationship with someone with great anticipation and great excitement to be with them. And then it took an unexpected turn and it crashed in disappointment. We've all had relationships with people that we were excited about that left us longing for much more and left us brokenhearted. Maybe that's even how you feel about Christmas. Is every year you have these high hopes that it'll be this great family time and, and you have these visions that your family will be as happy and united as you look in your Christmas card. And it rarely is. And even though it was an arranged marriage, you've got to think that Mary and Joseph were thrilled to be getting married, to finally get out of the kid stage of life and to be able to have someone to comfort them and to be their companion for the rest of life. They've got to be so excited about this. I mean, I remember being engaged to Natalie and it was the longest six months of my life. You know, I, I was so stinking excited to finally marry her. I imagine that that Joseph and Mary had some of that anticipation and excitement. And we don't know how the conversation went down when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. But imagine being a fly on that wall when she walked around the corner and he saw her three-month pregnant belly. And all the thoughts that started racing in his mind. I mean, one minute, he's so excited to see this fiancé, his girl, the one he'd been missing for three months, And it's not like she could send him a text message. I mean, he finds out here when he sees her belly and the excitement just gets wrecked. Can you hear his heart just start to beat? And his breath gets short and his mind just start to race. The NIV translates this next verse telling us what happened in Joseph's mind. Pretty simply, it just says, Joseph considered these things. 
But I looked up that Greek word, and, and it really is better translated, Joseph was quickly provoked to an agitated state of mind. It's the Greek word that's used for shortness of breath. Joseph was out of breath when he encountered this. Eugene Peterson writes in the message, Joseph tried every way to figure a way out. Maybe you've been there too. Maybe you have had a dream that has been shattered and a hope that has been destroyed and you have tried every way possible to figure a way out. Three years ago, just before Christmas, I got a phone call from a dear friend. I had been his youth pastor when he was in high school and um, as soon as I answered the phone, I knew that something was really wrong. And um, he was just crying. And he told me this, this awful story about how his wife had caught him physically cheating on her with another woman. And um, he's, he was just desperate. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And he was going to spend Christmas alone because his wife had left him. He was desperate. And he was trying to figure a way out. You know, this season of Advent is a season for people with broken hearts. It's a season for people with shattered dreams. It's a season where we cry out in longing and we say, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. God, are you ever going to come and ransom captive Israel? God, free us. We are captive that mourns in lonely exile here. Do you even hear our cries, God? Until the Son of God appears, our only hope is you, Jesus, coming back. This is a season where we cry out in longing. But the Christmas story is so familiar to us that it can often numb us. But here in Matthew, right at the beginning of the story, we are giving permission to mourn with Joseph and to wrestle with God. So before we move on, in the spirit of Advent and of waiting, what I want to do right now is just to give you a moment to sit with that brokenness and to sit with your shattered hopes and your shattered dreams and to, to wrestle with God. So I'm just going to give you 30 seconds, which is going to feel long here, but I just want you to take a moment and take a deep breath and just recall those disappointments that you faced, the, the hopes and the expectations that you've had that have been shattered. And just hold them out before the Lord. And try to enter into that mourning and that brokenness before we figure out where to go next. As we continue to look at, at Matthew's account, what we're going to see here is a pattern from Joseph's life and his response that really can serve as a map for us to help us figure out how we are called to respond when we face disappointment. So if you're taking notes today, I'm going to go ahead and give you the map of these five things first, and then we'll walk through those five things together. But I'm just going to give you five words to write down. The first word is excitement. 
You know, Joseph started with this place of excitement and anticipation. And then the second word is disappointment. Those dreams were shattered in disappointment. And then thirdly, surrender. We're going to see what happened with Joseph here. And then fourth, obedience. And lastly, communion. Now, this is a, a pattern that we see in Joseph's life, and we see us repeat throughout our lives. And it begins with excitement, and then encounters disappointment, and then let's look at what comes next. Matthew writes in verse 19, Joseph did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, so he planned to divorce her quietly. Think about what that would mean for Joseph. I mean, if he divorced her quietly. His own reputation would be destroyed. You know, People would think that he was an adulterer and that he abandoned his kids. But he was going to divorce her quietly. That's what he decided after he considered these things. He was going to lay down his reputation. And often following Jesus requires that we lay down our reputations and what people think of us. And that's hard. And in verse 20, Matthew records, After Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So Joseph wrestled with how he was going to respond, and he considered his options, and then he, what? Laid down. He fell asleep. And I imagine he probably had a hard time falling asleep. You know, his thoughts were racing, but all we know is that eventually Joseph went to sleep because he had a dream, and then it's recorded that he woke up. But I don't know about you, but whenever I face disappointment, my tendency is not to rest. It is to double down and work a lot harder. You know, I, we... Uh, I was, I was talking about this sermon with some friends and, um, and one of them kindly asked me like how the Lord was using this, this text in my own life. And um, I had written this other, other direction I was gonna go in the sermon and I just started to think like, so much of my life is me trying to will my way forward. It's not like, being okay with how things are, but it's trying really hard to make things go the direction I want them to go. And I started looking at Joseph's life, and I'm like, and this is a passage for me, and it's not easy. But, you know, we've got to understand that whenever we try to will our way, things just go completely sideways. When I was 16, I was driving down I-40, in Winston-Salem, and I was following my uncle to work. And uh, he's a photographer, and I, I worked with him when I was in high school doing sports photography, and we were taking these team photos. And this was before cell phones and GPS, and I didn't know where to go, but he's in his TC photo van in front of me, and I'm driving my 84 Honda Accord. And, um, and we're driving down 40, you know, and I'm probably, like, thinking about some girl and listening to country music and daydreaming, and I lose his car, and I'm like, oh, no, like, I don't know where he is. And so, like, you know, as a 16-year-old, I just pedal the metal, speed up. You know, I'm, like, going 90 down I-40, and I, and I can't find his car. And finally, I get to the place where 40 bypass goes here and 40 business goes here, and I look over, and he's going 40 bypass, and I'm on the left lane of 40 business. And I got a decision to make, and in this moment, I'm like, I'm going to make it, you know? And so I, I, <laughs> I pedal, pedal down and yank that steering wheel, and with my two months of driving experience, I... <laughs> Put that car spinning and flipping upside down three times and landing backwards facing on I-40. And after going through the windshield and being ambulance to the emergency room and having 
surgery and staples in my head, I was all right. But isn't that often what happens with our life? Is when it's going a direction that we don't want to go, we try to take control of that wheel and turn it as hard as we can to get it to go the way we want it to go. And what happens when we do that? I mean, often the same thing that happened to my car is, is we end up just flipping and going crazy and being more exhausted and more disappointed than when we began. The reality is us doubling down and our willpower will always lead us to a place that is worse for us than a place of surrender, a place that is more exhausted and more disappointed than if we were willing to lay down and to rest. What would it look like for us to respond to disappointment with surrender and with rest? Maybe it would look like us going to sleep. Rest can be one of the purest acts of worship. It's letting go of control. And it's saying, God, I trust you more than I trust me and my plans. And when Joseph finally laid down, what happened to him? An angel spoke to him. This isn't a formula for how to get angels to talk to you in your sleep. But I do think that it's much easier for us to encounter the voice of Jesus when we are still versus when we are striving. Listen to what the angel told Joe here in verse 20. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name. Joseph, you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel tells Joseph this bewildering news and confirms what Mary had said is true, that she is indeed pregnant with the Messiah, the long-awaited son of God. And as hard as that is to believe, throughout the rest of the Bible, the New Testament authors tell us something that's even crazier. They tell us that the same thing that happened to the Virgin Mary happens to us when we confess that Jesus is the son of God. 1 John 4, 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, my father will come to him and make his home in him. Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. 1 John 3, 24, all who keep his commandments live in him and he in them. And Colossians 1, 27, the apostle is, Paul is clear about this divine indwelling. He says, this is the mystery of the gospel. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And it strikes me that the angel reveals this to Joseph while he is resting. Not while he's at the courthouse filing divorce papers, not while he's out running crazy, but while he is still. A couple months ago, I got an encouraging email from a friend who is a kind friend who continues to encourage me to rest and to stop striving. And he sent me something that was written by a priest named Father Basil Pennington. And it was a simple sentence, and it said this, God dwells with us. He is always at home within us. But most of the time, we are not at home. 
God dwells with us. He is always at home with us. But most of the time, we are not at home. The pattern we see is excitement, anticipation, then disappointment, then surrender, often through rest. And now let's look at what comes next, obedience. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph did what was commanded of him. He obeyed God even when the circumstances seemed overwhelming and far from what he had planned. He took Mary as his wife. He showed patience and sexual restraint and a commitment to righteousness. And then he gave the baby the name Jesus, meaning God save us. Y'all, I'm sure that Joseph was likely as confused as we would be if this happened to us. But he gave up something. He gave up his right to understand. He didn't understand why this was happening. He simply obeyed God. You know, many times in my relationship with the Lord, and as I talk to many of you, I think it's true of you as well, that we don't get understanding to the why until after we have moved into obedience. God says, will you trust me? Will you move this way? And then let me show you why. But it's hard to know how to obey God unless we surrender our will and our plans and put ourselves in a position where we can hear his will and his plans. And even after that, obedience is not easy. You know, what we're talking about this morning is really hard to do. It is really hard to take shattered hopes and move into surrender and to not try to take more control. This is really, really hard. And, and it's been in us and woven into our makeup because of our sin nature. I mean, since we were infants, we have been people who have longed to rebel and to try to remain in control. But I think for most of us in our Christian culture here in America, that our rebellion often doesn't look like typical rebellion. It looks more like passivity. Maybe our greatest danger is the same temptation that Joseph faced in verse 19. Remember earlier? Because Joseph was faithful to the, to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He found out his fiance was pregnant with somebody else's baby, and his temptation wasn't to be a jerk or to gather everybody to pick up rocks and throw them at his fiance. His temptation was to be a nice guy and to divorce her quietly. That would be much easier than actually believing that she was pregnant with the son of God. But after hearing from the angel, what happened to Joe? He went from being a nice guy to a risk-taking, obedient follower of God. Even when he had no clue of how things would turn out, even when he had no control, even when it cost him his reputation, even when it meant that he would no longer pass on his family name, even though it meant he would now adopt a son instead of have his biological son, even when it meant that he'd have to run from King Herod for his life and for his family's life and flee to Egypt so his son would not be murdered. Joseph didn't just do a nice thing or a good thing. He did a godly thing and risked everything. He didn't just do the right thing. He did the righteous thing. And where did it lead him? What did Joseph get? He got this intimate 
relationship with the Son of God. He got to be with them. He got to teach him how to do carpentry work and walk alongside him and learn how to walk in these unforced rhythms of grace of knowing the very Son of God. He got to be with Jesus. He got communion. We see this pattern with Joseph. Excitement, disappointment, surrender, obedience, communion. And we see this pattern repeat over and over in our life. It's not just one linear pattern that we're going to go through one time. It's one we're going to go through daily and weekly in our lives with Christ. So how does it play out for us? I mean, we could take a thousand different examples, but let's just take the scenario that's going to happen three days from now on Christmas morning. There's great excitement and great anticipation that is often met with disappointment. Kids, maybe it's not getting the gift that, that you wish that you would have gotten. Or parents, maybe it's not being able to afford the gift that your kid wanted. Or not seeing gratefulness in their eyes when they open the gift that you worked so hard to give them. Grandparents, maybe it's not being able to be with your kids. Or maybe for a lot of us, it's, it's just feeling that you didn't even start the cycle in excitement. That you started in disappointment from a place of loneliness and numbness and apathy. And just like, I don't want to be hurt or alone anymore, so I'm not even going to feel. Instead of offering solutions, I'd love just to to offer a few questions for you to think about. What would it look like for you to respond to disappointment through this pattern of surrender Obedience and communion. If you're responding to disappointment with control and trying to turn the wheel with all your might, what would it look like for you to rest and to surrender and to bring your disappointment to God? Does following Jesus for you look like being a nice person and doing good things? Or does it feel risky and costly? And last question. What is following Jesus costing you? Now, I don't know about you, but I hear questions like that, and I just feel pretty beat down. I feel like, man, I am a pretty crappy Christian. You know, I, I kind of take advantage of, of God and, and do the things that can still make me happy and be in control. But if you hear those questions and you feel like a failure... Let me read to you from some of the most famous song lyrics that were ever, ever written. Much like how Andrew Osinga wrote those songs for his kids to hear one day. The words that I'm about to read were written by God the Father through the Apostle Paul for you, God's children, to hear one day. So you would know about his son. So you would know what is true about Jesus. This is part of the Christ hymn from Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when you feel like you don't have it in you, to respond to disappointment with surrender. Know that Jesus himself made the ultimate surrender through the incarnation. 
And when you feel like a failure and a disobedient child to God, know that Jesus himself paid for everything, every sin that you have ever sinned, every, everything that we have ever done wrong through his obedience that led to death, even death on a cross. And the best news is that that same Jesus who made his home in Mary wants to make his home in you and me. Five verses later, after that Christ hymn in Philippians 2.13, Paul writes this hopeful reminder. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Church of the Redeemer, it is God who works in you in order to will and act his good purpose in your life. It is not you. It is God in you. So my prayer for us this coming Christmas is that we would know the reality of the incarnation in our own lives and that when we feel like we have nothing left to give, that we would know with confidence that it is God himself who lives and works within us. Y'all, he hasn't just given you the strength you need for today. He has given you his very presence, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen.